G'day, it's Phil Edwards, Vision CEO here, with a quick invitation to become part of this amazing beacon of hope called Vision. Together we can put our love into action to help people of all kinds build or rebuild their lives on the truth of God. Please consider the part you can play during our upcoming Visionathon appeal, remembering that it's your support that makes Vision possible, including this podcast. 2020, bringing a biblical perspective on life, culture and current events. Weekdays on UCB's Vision Radio Network. Find out more at vision.org.au. It's great to have you with us. It is the Wednesday edition of 2020 and we will be opening the talkback lines this hour. Your input on the issue of euthanasia. We'll be able to talk the ins and outs of euthanasia and the different types of ways that people either think about taking their own lives or if you get to the end of your life or if you've been suffering some form of chronic illness, those sorts of thoughts that might go through your mind. And then there's the idea of ageing parents or people in your community who may be ageing and thinking that somehow or other euthanasia may be an option for them. Let's talk about those issues of euthanasia and to help us along the way in discussing these things and even coming to a Christian understanding of euthanasia, good to be able to welcome Denise Cooper-Clark. Dr. Denise Cooper-Clark is a graduate of medicine and theology with a PhD in medical ethics. She has some special interests in professional ethics. She teaches medical ethics at the University of Melbourne and she's joining us today to talk through these issues. Hello, Dr. Denise cooper Clark, welcome to 2020. Denise, uh, wonderful to be able to uh, uh, catch a hold of your heartbeat on this issue today. Uh, This is a particularly interesting area for you to be talking about when it comes to euthanasia. Uh, Tell me why it is such a special interest and why it is such a hot topic right now. Well, it's a hot topic right now, um, I guess, because there is a bill before the Senate the Dying with Dignity Medical Services Bill, which has been proposed by the Green Senator, Richard Di Natale. But it's actually been um, an issue that won't go away over many, many years now. Almost at any time over the last 10 years, there would have been a bill before a state parliament um, proposing euthanasia or physician-assisted suicide. And there are many people in the community who are pushing for it very hard. Okay, now let me just ask you, we keep seeing this issue arise in our Australian society quite regularly, whether it's a a bill from the Greens in the Senate or whether it's uh, all sorts of uh, issues that keep arising in state politics. But there are very few countries around the world that have legalised euthanasia. Why do you think that is? Uh, Generally because... When it comes to writing legislation, um, the lawmakers realise that it would be very difficult to to write it in such a way that it provides adequate protection for vulnerable people. Um, and that is, the, I think, the main argument that has held sway and has prevented it being legalised in most places around the world, as you say. So when there's a push on from the Greens or from others uh, outside of, uh, even out of, uh, outside of government, uh, when there is a push on, uh, there really is a really big minefield that people are trying to negotiate in order to bring in some sort of legislation for euthanasia. But, uh, but the minefield is so great, it would be an incredible risk. 
Well, I think so. Um, obviously, the people who are pushing for this think that it's possible to uh, write the legislation very carefully in order to provide sufficient safeguards. Um, but I suppose there's disagreement even amongst euthanasia advocates themselves as to what those safeguards might be. Uh, for example, should euthanasia only be available for people who are terminally ill? Um, generally, it's been accepted that that would be the case. Then there's a the question of actually defining what does it mean to be terminally ill? Um, does that mean that you're going to die within six months or 12 months or just that eventually an illness that you have currently would be expected to uh, result in death sometime in the future. Um, then there's the question of, well, if you're not terminally ill, uh, but you have a, a chronic, very debilitating disease, shouldn't that be a sufficient reason for euthanasia? Because sometimes people have awful diseases that are not terminal, but still um, cause a great deal of suffering. So those kinds of questions. Yeah. Denise, tell me about the difference between uh, what you'd be calling physician-assisted suicide and the idea of a patient who might be ageing and, uh, and even family comes in and, and has to make tough decisions about withholding medical treatment or pain relief or, mm. or shortening a life because these are two very different areas, aren't they? I think so, yes. In the past and even perhaps still today, some pro-euthanasia advocates have tried to argue that they are very similar. And in a sense, if you adopt a particular ethical framework, that is the framework of consequentialism, which says that the only ethically significant fact um, about an ethical decision is what is the consequence, you could argue that whether you turn off a ventilator or give a lethal injection, in both cases the result is that the patient dies, and so, therefore, they're equivalent morally. But I think there are a lot of problems with that. Firstly, I'm not a consequentialist. I don't believe that the only ethical, ethically significant factor in a, in a decision is the consequence. I think the way you achieve something is also morally significant. And if when you're giving a lethal injection, you are actually killing the patient yourself, taking moral responsibility for the death of that person... Whereas if you turn off a ventilator or stop dialysis, um, perhaps um, fail to give antibiotics in an elderly person with pneumonia, uh, or more controversially, if you withdraw artificial nutrition and hydration, you are allowing the person to die from the condition that they have. They may not die, um, but you're saying treatment in this case is no longer appropriate. So there's a sense in which uh, when there is a patient who may be dying, there is a sense in which you could just continue to keep life in the body of that patient by continuing to have all of those uh, artificial ways of keeping the body alive. But there comes a point where you'd make a decision and say, uh, you know, this person, if they were able to survive under their own strength, that would be a way of, uh, of, of surviving. But, but a point comes where you make a decision about turning off those systems. Yes. And sometimes, in fact, that decision is made by, by the patient themselves. So a patient who may have been on dialysis for many years um, decides that it's just not worth their while to continue with it because it is, 
it is very burdensome uh, to be on dialysis. And if a patient has no prospect of a, a renal transplant, a kidney transplant, let's say, um, and their life is totally dominated by the dialysis and they're just physically getting frailer and frailer, they may, not they don't always, many people cope okay, but some people will just get to the point where they say, this is too burdensome, I don't want to continue with this. If, on the other hand, the patient is, is unconscious, um, I guess we have to say, what is the point of continuing with this treatment? Because medical treatment always has to have a purpose. You don't just do it because it's there. You have to have a goal in mind. And if the person is never going to recover consciousness and has no kind of life that is like, unable to even uh, relate to other people, um, you could say that that treatment is not really serving any purpose. Denise, tell me about being a Christian and having to make decisions like this. Uh, is it difficult uh, to make decisions? It, I'm, I, of course it's difficult, I guess, for everybody making these sorts of d- decisions. But when you have some guidance from a biblical foundation, uh, where do you stand there as a Christian? I think perhaps it is a little more difficult for Christians because we have such a high view of human life and we think that human life is is very precious and very special. Um, And so Christians sometimes can be more um, tentative or troubled by um, discontinuing treatment, for instance, um, so that they might need to think through this as to whether continuing the treatment is appropriate. Now, do you want me to talk about why Christians have such a high view of, of human life. I think we were getting to that, yes. yes. Uh, let's, let's talk about why Christians have this value on human life that others seem not to be so serious about. Well, I think that um, we, we derive that from the Scriptures and particularly from Genesis chapter 1. And I think this is probably... Um, I mean, most societies have a have a a moral view that it is wrong to kill people, generally. That seems to be a universal human value. But Christians have a particular reason for thinking that, and that is that humans are uniquely created in the image of God. And when it says that humans are created in the image of God, I think the allusion there is to a temple where there is a statue of the God, and that statue... The image of the God represents God. And so if you attack that statue, if you attack that image, or you deface it in any way, you're actually attacking God himself because you're attacking his representative. And Genesis 9 talks about um, not shedding blood. Whoever sheds the blood of a human, a human shall that person's blood be shed for. In his own image, God made humankind. And so we have a very explicit linkage there between the fact that people, humans, are made in the image of God and this forbidding of taking human life. And of course, we also have the commandment, thou shalt not kill, you shall not kill, or perhaps better translated, you shall not murder. Okay, so if we were looking at our heritage here in Australia and we were saying that given that we have such a strong Christian heritage right back to the arrival of the First Fleet, 
uh, and there's been a, a presumption that God is God and that people have been created in his image, that people have value. As that's been whittled away, as that's been chipped away, and people are doubtful that we are made in the image of God, does this create a danger point for us when it comes to this issue of euthanasia, that some point or other, someone might tip us over the edge and all of a sudden we don't value human life the way that we traditionally have? I think that is very much the case. I mean, I think Australia is definitely a post-Christian society now. We can't assume that Christian values have have very much traction anymore. Um, as I said, this valuing of human life is actually not just a Christian value. Um, almost all societies do have protection for human life built into their legal codes, but um, this kind of absolute valuing of human life, well, almost absolute, is particular to Christianity and um, as Christianity has, the influence has waned, then yes, certainly people are, don't value human life as much as they used to. It's an interesting thing, though, when you might be sitting with your family doctor, if you have an ageing relative, someone who potentially uh, you know, could be a candidate for uh, this idea of euthanasia, that sitting with the doctor, the advice you get may well vary according to that doctor's beliefs. Is that the case sometimes? Well, at the moment, euthanasia is illegal, so no doctor would give you advice along those lines, or very few would. Uh, some doctors have admitted to doing this, but generally, doctors obey the law. Um, the other thing to mention here is that it's not just um, society in general which has uh, a kind of um, universal dislike or repugnance towards killing people but the medical profession itself has a very very long tradition of forbidding doctors to be involved in causing people's death and this goes right back to the time of Hippocrates so third or fourth century BC before Christianity uh, doctors were specifically prohibited from causing someone's death and that tradition has been maintained in the medical profession quite apart from any particular religious allegiance. And even today, um, medical associations in their codes of ethics are very definite that they do not support euthanasia, even though all physician-assisted suicide, even though they say that there are some circumstances where it's appropriate to let people die. So that the doctor you, you talk to will have that um, sort of general medical background as well as whatever particular religious views they have. So it's never going to reasonably be the doctor that you would have to fear when it comes to these issues of life and death and euthanasia. It's typically going to be uh, people who are agitating politically and in the case of the fact that there is a euthanasia bill before the Senate now that was introduced by the Greens, it's political agitation that probably is the thing we ought to fear most. Well, that political agitation reflects a very significant proportion of the population. If you ask um, the question uh, in, in surveys, and this has been done many times, um, if you ask the question if somebody is suffering unbearably from a terminal illness, should uh, their doctor be allowed to take steps to end their life? I think 
80 to 90%, maybe even more, will say yes. Um, so that, in, in a way, it's surprising that euthanasia hasn't been legalised before now with such strong public support. Um, so it's not just euthanasia sort of agitators. Uh, a, a lot of people support it, and, and some doctors do as well. Okay, we'll continue our conversation in just a short while. You might have a question about dying or about palliative care, about pain relief. What are your concerns about the push for euthanasia? You can call us. Our talkback line is open 1-800-880-076. That's 1-800-880-076. Our special guest is Dr Denise Cooper-Clark, a medical ethicist, a researcher too with Ethos, the Evangelical Alliance Centre for Christianity and Society. We'll continue our conversation in just a short while. The Broken Beautiful. You're on Australia's Vision Radio Network. Neil Johnson with you on 2020. Our special guest is Dr Denise Cooper-Clark, medical ethicist, a researcher for Ethos, the Evangelical Alliance Centre for Christianity and Society. We're talking through the very sensitive topic of euthanasia and you may have a question for Dr Denise Cooper-Clark, whether that's about someone in your family or someone that you know who is ageing, issues of palliative care or pain relief when someone's growing old, uh, issues about dying and some of the questions that might arise in your mind as a Christian when it comes to dying. Uh, Denise, do you find that when you're talking to uh, families that there are a lot of questions that are are arising when they've got a family member who is dying? Well, yes. Um, I suppose there's two main areas that people have concerns about. One is um, whether everything that could be done is being done or should be done. Um, and the other is about pain relief at the end of life. So many people are concerned if their um, elderly relatives have, have opiates, perhaps morphine, in increasing doses towards the end of their life. And sometimes people worry that those... Um, drugs might be actually hastening the person's death. But um, generally, from talking to palliative care specialists who are very skilled in administering these sorts of drugs, they say that when people are skilled and uh, know what they're doing, these drugs are very safe to administer. And uh, people can have even quite high dosages of these drugs as long as they are increased gradually. And it won't necessarily end their life sooner than uh, sooner because of course when someone is in the process of dying we don't know when they're going to die there's a lot of uncertainty about that but there is some evidence that adequate pain relief can actually um, prolong life a little bit rather than shorten it because being in terrible pain is uh, is awful and can sometimes cause people to die sooner especially being in what we call respiratory distress, where people are gasping for breath, giving morphine can actually settle them down and and mean that they're much more comfortable in their last days of life. Inviting listeners to be a part of our conversation. If you have a question or a comment about this issue we're talking about, euthanasia, and uh, even more broadly about dying, and if you have a family member or someone you know who's close to you, about the issues that go on when it comes to medical care for the dying, uh, give us a call. 1-800-880-076 is our number. That's one 800 Eighty-eight zero eighty-seven six. Denise, 
is it a fair enough thing to say that one of the biggest arguments against euthanasia is the very fact that palliative care these days is so advanced and so useful? Well, to a certain extent, it's a fair enough thing to say that. Um, Certainly, uh, requests for euthanasia seem to be more common in places where adequate palliative care doesn't exist. But I think it's also true to say that sometimes requests for euthanasia are not actually related to physical pain or suffering. So even if someone's pain and symptoms are adequately managed, they can still feel that they want to die. They can be hopeless about their situation. They can feel a fear of dying, um, wondering what it's going to be like, thinking that will be awful. And I guess one of the the big um, reasons for people having euthanasia and physician-assisted suicide overseas is always given as the, the, the need to be in control. And palliative care can't really fix that. Um, so the way I put this is that this is a, a non-medical problem, really. It's an existential problem that people have um, about dying and feeling that their, their, their life is out of their control, that they want to be in control and that they want to say when they will die. And, and as I say, palliative care can't really do anything about that. To an extent it can in the sense that palliative care is a holistic discipline where social workers, counsellors, chaplains are involved. And if people want to talk through these kind of issues, they have the opportunity to do that. And sometimes um, people will be able to find some meaning in their life or a source of hope, even though their lifespan is limited through counselling, but not always. So It may be... Adequate palliative care will never completely eliminate requests for euthanasia. It may be a little aside to talk about this type of issue, but when you are talking about people who are in their dying days and all of these thoughts are tensions in their thinking and advice coming, perhaps from all sorts of different perspectives, are people thinking at this point about the hereafter, about heaven, or even if you're taking that to another level, heaven and hell. Are people talking about or thinking about what comes in, you know, beyond this life? Well, I guess it depends on what their pre-existing beliefs are. Certainly, uh, sometimes people, when faced with death, have to are forced to start thinking about those things in a way that they maybe haven't before. But generally, the way people die is uh, consistent with and continuous with the way that they've lived their life. So if they haven't really um, been interested in spiritual things or faith up to that point in their life, they may well continue not to be interested in those things. And if they believe that death is simply a cessation of existence... um, they may not bother about that too much, so that they wouldn't necessarily um, stop them from requesting euthanasia because they wouldn't be afraid of 
what happens after death. Mm. You mentioned the important role of chaplains uh, when someone is going through a time when they're making all sorts of decisions about these sorts of things. Uh, Chaplains obviously carry with them the hope in the message of the gospel. There is a sense, isn't there, in which an old uh, saying I often remember that there are no atheists on death row, uh-huh. that, uh, that when you've got people who are dying, there is an important role for chaplains there in actually uh, bringing that message of hope because that hope is about eternity. Well, that's right, although it, it's in some ways, I guess chaplains have to be very careful um, that people who are at the end of their life in uh, suffering are very vulnerable and it would be inappropriate to push push ideas on them, um, to, certainly to invite them to explore um, things of faith and to offer them hope. But if they're closed off to that, um, then maybe the last few days of life is is not going to really make much difference. As I said, they're going to live their life, they're going to die as they have lived. It raises a whole other different area too, given that this week is actually Mental Health Week and uh, the mental health of people who are uh, in their dying days, uh, you might assume that that they may not be thinking the same way that they thought in their uh, younger or stronger days. Is What happens with people's mental health uh, in those dying days? Well, I wouldn't want to say in the dying days as such, but certainly in perhaps the months um, that before someone is likely to die, um, it's, I guess, fairly natural that they would be feeling sad, um, perhaps have disturbances of sleep, have preoccupation with thoughts about death, uh, and generally those sort of symptoms that we normally would associate with depression. Um, whether they're actually depressed in the clinical sense that they would benefit from treatment, or whether in fact that's quite um, normal to feel that way when you are facing death, um, it's not always clear. But it is clear that one of the things that people who are terminally ill um, struggle with is this sense of hopelessness or helplessness. There's nothing I can do about this. I'm going to die. My life is over. I feel despairing. And it has been shown that um, people in palliative care situations or even perhaps in other situations, if they're fortunate enough to have a counsellor who is skilled in this, can actually regain a sense of hope and a sense of meaning in their life through things like perhaps journaling or making uh, an album of their life to leave for their children and grandchildren, perhaps um, making an oral history of their life, uh, just being encouraged to think about the positive things about their life. Um, and and that can make a big difference to someone's um, emotional health at that time. There is so much more to talk about. We'll continue our conversation in just a few moments. Dr. Denise Cooper-Clark, medical ethicist, is our guest. We are talking through the issue of euthanasia, and as you can hear, we're talking about what's happening in those times, perhaps the latter years of our lives or lives of family members who may be close to us. You can be a part of our conversation, and the talkback line is open, one 800 
880 interested in your comments or your questions about this issue of euthanasia. 1-800-880-876. Back with more in just a short while. It's Neil Johnson with you on this Wednesday edition of 2020. Our special guest this hour is Dr Denise Cooper-Clark, medical ethicist, and we're talking through the issues of euthanasia. Now, there is a euthanasia bill that's before the Senate. It's been put up by the Greens, and that is being... Uh, worked through at this time. Uh, let's continue to take some calls. You can be a part of our conversation today. One eight hundred eighty eight zero eighty seven six. John is on the line from Brisbane. Hello, John. Welcome to twenty twenty. How are you? Very well, John. What's your uh, question or what's your comment yeah, about I'm our discussion? Interested in um, some comments that Denise, if she was able to make. Uh, ages ago, I was researching euthanasia, and I discovered that in the Netherlands, a certain percentage of euthanasia deaths are actually against the patient's wishes. So the family kind of reaches the point where they make a decision and even though the patient may have reached the point of unconsciousness, the decision is then made on their behalf to go ahead and commit euthanasia. And so would Denise mind making some comments about that? Denise, uh, what are your thoughts on what John's talking about there, involuntary euthanasia? Yes. Um, it's very difficult to know what goes on in Holland um, because I think uh, not all euthanasia deaths are adequately documented. There is a sense that quite a lot goes on without being reported. But I've certainly heard a similar thing. And in fact, um, in Holland, it would not be illegal for a patient who was no longer competent, that is, no longer able to make their own decision, to be euthanized um, as long as the family could demonstrate or argue that that is what they would have wanted when they were still competent to make that decision. What I think is even more disturbing in the Netherlands is that um, children can be euthanized. So if they're over the age of 12... Uh, Between the age of 12 and 16, they would also need parental consent. But children as young as 12 can request euthanasia. And I think that it's very difficult to argue that a child can really understand what's involved and is really competent to make a decision of such gravity. More recently, in Holland, um, even infants can be euthanized. And there is a particular protocol that allows doctors to decide with parental consent um, that newborn infants um, can be euthanized if they're suffering unbearably and these sort of things are part of the reason why people are very concerned that once euthanasia is introduced for a certain group of people it will gradually over time spread to include many more people and that's certainly what's happened in Holland it's happened in Belgium, where child euthanasia has also recently been legalised. John, you're still with us. Uh, yes, does that answer uh, your question? Anything yeah, more to add? Absolutely. I guess the other thing, I guess if, as Christians, we're now aware and there's the bill in front of Parliament, what, what are we able to do, I guess, to try and bring this to the attention of people in politics to try and help to stop it going through? For this particular bill, I think the submissions have closed, um, but they did receive hundreds of submissions and they did say that of the individual submissions, I think it was something like 53% were opposed. Um, 
I don't know what the result of this will be. Um, I'm not sure that we can... Well, the time for making submissions is over now. But, um, yes, again, with as with all issues, writing to your local member and uh, generally publicising what's going on and getting the arguments out there is really important. And oftentimes when a bill like this is before the Senate or before the House of Representatives and there are uh, a call for submissions, uh, we'll often be publicising that here on a program like 2020 where you can uh, be alerted to the fact that uh, you either uh, make a submission through, uh, you know, whether it's an email or whether it's a a hard copy letter. Uh, Those opportunities are often alerted uh, to you uh, on through 2020. Thank you very much for your time today, John. Great to have you as part of 2020. Let me just ask you a little further on that, Denise. Uh, when it comes to the things that we've been talking about there in the Netherlands, uh, the idea of a slippery slope, you're saying that once you have a foot in the door, when this legislation uh, gets to a point where it uh, it passes, uh, then it really doesn't take that long, if it's the case of the Netherlands, uh, before you've got all of these other uh, really grey areas and really disturbing things that happen. Yes, I think... Um this is this is a big problem, and this is, I think, part of the reason why um, Australian parliaments and and indeed places all around the world have so far resisted the call to legalise euthanasia is because of this slippery slope, so called. Uh, a lot of people kind of poo-poo this idea of a slippery slippery slope, but I think it's very real, and it's real not only from a theoretical point of view, but also from an empirical point of view. So. The empirical point of view is says, well, look what's happened in Holland, look what's happened in Belgium. Euthanasia legislation, when it was brought in, was quite specific. But gradually, over time, the number of people who can be euthanized has expanded to include different categories not originally envisaged. But the theoretical argument is even more powerful. So if we say euthanasia should just be for people who are suffering and just be for people who are mentally ill, uh, sorry, just be for people who are terminally ill, and just be for people who are competent, that is, competent adults. So let's say we introduce euthanasia legislation along those lines. Then the argument, the logical argument is, well, if it's the fact that you are competent and make a request that's important, why should you have to be terminally ill? Or if it's the fact that you are suffering with an awful disease, um, why should you have to make a request? So in other words, um, the number of people who can be euthanized just because they make a request is expanded from the terminally ill to the chronically ill and even the mentally ill. So that in Holland, there was a famous case where a woman who was suffering from severe depression was euthanized even though she had no physical illness at all. And then on the other hand, if it's um, if it's the suffering that is the important thing here, that that your motivation is to relieve suffering, well, then you can argue, why should the person have to be able to request it? Surely we should extend this to people who are unconscious or people who are not competent, even young children and infants, because they can suffer just as much. So on both those grounds, I think it's it's almost inevitable that whatever safeguards you introduce initially, the process will expand. That is a 
grand description of the slippery slope and uh, very convincing as we listen to what you're saying. Dr. Denise Cooper-Clark is our guest, medical ethicist. We are talking through issues of euthanasia. Uh, You may have some questions about dying, about palliative care. Uh, What are your concerns about the push for euthanasia in Australia? The talkback line is open. 1-800-880-876 is our number. 1-800-880-876 to participate in our conversation. Dr Denise Cooper-Clark, medical ethicist, back with more in just a few moments. It's Neil with you on 2020. We're talking through the issue of euthanasia. Dr Denise Cooper-Clark, medical ethicist is our guest. Uh, Denise, having talked about the slippery slope that we did in our last segment, uh, just comment for me, if you will, on the challenge that there is, uh, that sometimes Christians actually uh, push for this idea of euthanasia. What would be behind uh, Christians actually moving that direction? Well, I think that Christians, um, all Christians, should actually be able to understand the positive motivation towards supporting euthanasia, and that is the very legitimate desire to ease suffering. So as Christians, you know, the parable of the Good Samaritan um, and our whole tradition uh, says that Christians should be willing, should be um, keen to, to look after the sick and to relieve suffering. And that is the motivation for, for many people for supporting euthanasia and including Christians. And so they would say, well, yes, on the one hand, we have a very um, heavy-duty principle, if you like, of, of respect for human life. On the other hand, relieving suffering is also a strong um, obligation that Christians have. I would argue, though, that um, relieving suffering is not quite as strong as the principle of respecting human life and that generally there are better ways to relieve suffering. Um, We've talked about palliative care, we've talked about counselling, and I guess the other thing is you need to be sure if you legislate for euthanasia that you don't end up causing more suffering than you alleviate, that is through um, the practice spreading uh, to people who perhaps uh, are coerced into it um, or feel that their life is a burden that they don't really have a choice. So that's the way I can completely understand why some Christians do support euthanasia, but I think it's mistaken in the end. That's right. If we come back to those biblical foundations, the value of a human life, uh, that's something that we just can't take lightly. That is very, very strong, isn't it? Yes, it is. And I think that um, one of the um, big reasons that I, I think it's important to distinguish between killing someone through euthanasia and letting them die, that is, deciding not to prolong their life, uh, comes down to this question of understanding who is in charge of our lives. So if we understand that it's God's authority, God only has the authority to decide um, when someone dies, then we are accepting, I guess, we're demonstrating the virtue of humility. We're accepting that God is in control, not us. Whereas when we make the decision either to be killed, suicide or assisted suicide, or as a doctor to actually kill someone, then I think we're taking on an authority which is not ours to take on. And I guess um, you could say one case we are demonstrating the vice of hubris, 
arrogance. And the other, on the other side, when we let someone die, we're really saying we've reached the end of our power to keep this person alive. We don't actually have that kind of power. God has that power. And so we're demonstrating the virtue of humility. And making a principled stand, uh, if we come back to the Ten Commandments, uh, one of the commandments is thou shalt not kill, uh, which we'd understand uh, to be thou shalt not murder. Uh, there is something here, isn't there, that puts us into the category of, of, of uh, playing God or, or, uh, or breaking that commandment uh, if we actually pursue the direction of euthanasia. Yes, well, I think actually that's unfortunate to raise the topic of playing God so close to the end of the segment because there's a lot that could be said about this. To a certain extent, playing God is not a bad thing in the sense of if we do God's work, if we do God's work as his stewards in the world, um, we are playing God in the right sense. And I think doctors do this um, when they're engaged in, in healing and relieving suffering treating disease they're they're doing god's work um but there is another sense in which we play god as it as not just that we do what he would do but we actually try to usurp his authority or take his place um so when we let someone die we kind of leave them in god's hands but we kill them we take their life into our own hands i think it's okay to let people die because as Christians, we understand that death does come to all of us, and death is the gateway to resurrection. So we don't have to fear it. We don't have to put it off and fight to the bitter end to prevent it. On the other hand, I don't think we should ever actually um, cooperate with it. We should, we should never bring it on ourselves. Denise, you teach medical ethics. When you've got a class full of medical students and this topic comes up, what sort of uh, responses, questions, what sort of feeling do you get in the atmosphere in the classroom when you're talking through this issue? Well, as you would expect, usually pretty strong opinions, um, one both ways. So medical students represent the general population. Um, but as we talk about it, as we think through some of the implications, generally people realise that it's not as black and white as perhaps they have thought. Um, and also once students actually are in a clinical situation and actually dealing with patients, that does tend to change their perspective and make them less simplistic about these issues. Now... Tell me about how people can get more detail and become more informed when it comes to the issue of euthanasia. Uh, let's talk about the Ethos website for a moment because there are a lot of articles there. You've written some of those articles? I have, yes. yes. Um, I wrote an article about euthanasia several years ago now um, covering most of these issues. And then just last year I also wrote an article about uh, child euthanasia in, in Belgium when that had just come in. Um, yes, I think they're the main... But, of course, uh, if you just go on the internet, you'll find resources about this topic everywhere. That's right, and the website for Ethos, and Ethos is the Evangelical Alliance Centre for Christianity and Society, something of a think tank, and uh, you're a researcher uh, for Ethos, Denise, uh, but that's uh, ethos.org.au, and uh, you'll be able to access that information at ethos.org. 
www.ac.org.au. Just as we only have a couple of minutes left to talk, when it comes to families, and it's really, this is one question that often doesn't arise in families until you have a grandparent or a parent who is ageing and these sorts of issues come up around the dinner table. How do you approach these things and how do you bring that Christian foundation of the value of a human life into a conversation, do you think, around a dinner table? Well, I guess it's more common with Christian families um, that that they are concerned about um, discontinuing treatment. I know that um, people have often been surprised when I've said that every patient has the right to refuse any particular medical treatment. You're not obliged to accept every treatment. Dialysis, for instance, you can stop any time you want to if you think it's too burdensome. Some Christians are quite surprised about that. But in general, I think what's really important is that we actually talk about these things with our elderly relatives rather than waiting till it's too late and there's some crisis. These days, um, whenever someone is admitted to a nursing home, the uh, family will always be asked to fill in a form saying what their wishes would be in the event of uh, cardiac arrest or pneumonia or some emergency Um, that's useful to to fill in but only if you actually talk about it with your relative and really talk extensively about what sort of things they would want some people are very definite that they don't want heroic measures at the end of their life that they wouldn't want to be admitted to hospital for instance if they develop pneumonia that they wouldn't want to be rushed off in an ambulance and taken to intensive care They'd rather just be able to slip away, and that's perfectly acceptable. Uh, other people would want that, so it's just important to talk about it. Well, and I guess there's going to be people around hospitals too who are qualified to be able to talk through these sorts of issues and help people to come to uh, some consensus within the family as to direction as well. Uh, Dr Denise Cooper-Clark, our guest, I'll point you to that website. It's ethos.org.au. Denise, it has been a pleasure, and I hope we get to do this again sometime very soon. Thanks so much for being with us on 2020. Thank you. Love the music on Vision? Then become an Extra Mile partner. Your monthly contribution will help keep it flowing. See vision.org.au. Like what you've just heard? There's more great podcasts. Or you can listen to us live at vision.org.au. And remember, Vision is listener supported. Your donation of any amount will help us continue connecting faith to life. Learn more or donate today at vision.org.au.